0: Hello, my name is Michael, and welcome to the Investing Intellect Podcast, where we discuss issues affecting our global economy, money markets, and business. So the aim of this show is to, with each and every episode, leave you with a piece of knowledge and understanding about our economy, which you can then go on to utilizing in further conversations. Uh, Today, we're going to be focusing on Bitcoin, uh, British government treasuries, and British university fees. So we're going to be asking three key questions today, and that is firstly, is Bitcoin a hedge against inflation? Secondly, with the UK government selling negative yielding bonds for the first time, what distortionary effects may this have on other areas of capital markets? And uh, thirdly, with uh, or essentially given that universities are moving their uh, educational services online, should they be expected to charge lower fees? Right, so we're going to jump straight into this. You know, is Bitcoin a hedge against inflation? This is actually a question that I was asked by a fellow student about one and a half, two weeks ago. And you might be wondering, you know, why Bitcoin? Why inflation? And how is this even at all topical? So recently, you know, uh, negative yields, negative oil prices, magic internet coins and hyperinflation. These are all phrases that you'll probably be, you probably have been hearing, sorry, uh, over the past two months. And with this kind of macroeconomic insanity, um, it really does lead to some insane questions and proposals. So in short... Uh, Not really. Bitcoin cannot be considered a hedge against inflation in this current moment. And I have a three-pronged kind of argument as to why it is. um, Why it is kind of hard to argue in favor of Bitcoin really being a hedge against inflation uh, currently. So firstly the amount of speculation capital in bitcoin secondly it's lack of significant correlation with other assets and thirdly kind of the fact that we just don't know what the hell it is at the moment or how the system really works like okay sure we know it's a bunch of ones and zeros and computers kind of crack some math problems and get a reward and the bitcoin supply is inevitably going to be stuck forever stuck at a fixed uh, 21 million but you know what is it where does it how does it fit into our monetary system you know, if, we, if you look at the kind of natural hierarchy of money, uh, we have gold at the top, or followed which is, you know, quote-unquote, ultimate money. You have the currencies, such as the dollar, which historically was a promise to pay gold. You could give it to the bank, they would give you gold back for it. Following, you have deposits, which is, you know, bank deposits, like promises to pay currency. And below that, you've got securities, which is, again, promises to pay currency just at a later date. But Bitcoin, where does it fit in, into this kind of, you know, is it, it, okay, we know it's another currency, but does it promise, is it a promise to pay gold? Not really. I mean, <clears throat> it's, where, where is it, right? Is the Fed researching this? What do banks do with it at the end of the year? Do they kind of sell it to tax optimize? <clears throat> we don't, well, maybe we don't know. There's a lot of questions around the system. It's only got a 11-year-old history because that's when it was obviously uh, invented or something, but Really, this kind of whole conversation it stems from the idea that Bit- Bitcoin, sorry, can be thought of as a safe haven asset. And okay, despite the fact that it's just about the most volatile thing you can get your hands on, you know, you've also got the, like the online thefts from online crypto car- uh, crypto platforms. Um, at the end of the day, safe haven assets tend to have a negative correlation with mainstream risk assets like stocks or oil, but Bitcoin shows no correlation. And I think even CNBC talked about Bitcoin being an uncorrelated safe haven asset, which is kind of bonkers because, okay, just because it's uncorrelated to, or you you might perceive there to be no correlation between interest rates and Bitcoin, uh, trade wars and Bitcoin, that doesn't mean there's no movement. If you look at the Bitcoin chart, there's been a lot of movement, right? There's been a lot of volume. There's been a lot of everything. It doesn't seem that safe to me. But anyways, a hedge, kind of going back to the question, a hedge uh, should be an instrument with negative correlation to what you're hedging it against and it should lower your overall risk within your portfolio right that's a standard definition and so bitcoin fulfills neither or at least hasn't done so in the kind of short run uh you know that there's been no significant correlation with any other assets with inflation with anything right and kind of when we go back to inflation inflation is caused by the debasement of the currency in the long run and you know, for example, like the increase of in the money supply of the dollar, uh, printing and financing of fiscal deficits. But the question then remains is what fundamental link does the Bitcoin have to, like, currency the basement? Right? That, that's kind of what you're trying to find out. But, I mean, are you going to get an answer? I don't know. A critical kind of requirement for a valid hedge is the component of correlation. Tried and true correlation with, for example, inflation in this kind of scenario... Uh, It is what we would need to use it as a hedge, right? So you can calculate the risk, and there's less uncertainty, but more calculated, again, like I said, risk. So that if uh, inflation goes up, Bitcoin goes up, and overall, my portfolio uh, doesn't lose as much money because of it. Whatever you might be wondering about. But, again, like I said, there's there's been no sustained kind of positive correlation between Bitcoin and, for example, gold, which is an actual hedge against inflation. And so whether or not this kind of underlying causal uh, causal relationship and correlation is the case between Bitcoin and whatever else, it is simply clouded by, kind of like I said, the amount of capital from speculators and propriety, proprietary trading sorry, in Bitcoin. I mean, you can kind of retrospectively look back to the 2017 price spike. That was ridiculous. That, that, that was you know that the, the, there was no i mean i don't know how you how you'd like to explain it but there was a lot of momentum and there was a lot of hype people were getting it kind of became more mainstream then right then you've also got the bitcoin halving which took place i think beginning of may and the, the 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 way the bitcoin halving works is that when bitcoin does reach a certain level of supply or i think it happens every 4 years that's kind of how it's calculated the reward for mining bitcoins halves Right, so people heard the Bitcoin halving as if the supply is gonna cut in half. Uh, you know, that that's not the case. It's just the idea that the rate at which supply increases in the future, because of the reward system, is halved. So it's still gonna increase, the supply is still gonna increase, but just at a slower rate. But anyways, that that that's a lot of misunderstanding in a very interesting Bitcoin events, but that we're still beginning to work around and understand and build a kind of understanding of in general, right? Especially the general public. You know, people like you and I, I mean anyone, right? But anyways, the kind of triad of problems, the triad of problems that I posed earlier in regards to Bitcoin and its kind of usefulness as a hedge, you know, the the, the kind of speculation, the lack of correlation and really the lack of understanding of the system, they help solve one another with time, right? And specifically kind of long-term integration, So Bitcoin, as you know, uh, you know, as we know, Bitcoin is continuously being more integrated into our payment system, the investment banking world and other areas of kind of our financial and monetary world. Right. But, you know, even actually I was looking at LinkedIn recently, just looking for jobs and kind of saying what's up. I have been seeing and I did see uh, a Bitcoin analyst role and this was at some investment bank. But, you know, the idea is that this is really more integrated into our system because now you want specialists or maybe this isn't anything brand new, but I saw it recently. You do want specialists focusing on Bitcoin's transactions, keeping up the track with what's going on and analyzing, you know, just, just, just the Bitcoin system and the transactions, etc. Um, but I guess really... The biggest kind of challenge of achieving a Bitcoin price stability and usability, which is kind of closer to its fundamental value and usage, will be to remove as much of that speculation as possible. Because, for example, you know, it it doesn't really matter if Bitcoin is, in fact, in theory, an amazing hedge against inflation. When you have multi-million dollar flows of money in and out every day from speculators, you know, the cumulative inflows of which obviously create a bubble, which you you might have seen, uh, you, you know, For example, Bitcoin's 2070 rollercoaster, was this signaling investors fearful expectations of inflation or was it, you know, kind of a pure momentous speculative bull run? I mean, uh, you kind of get to decide that. Anyways, I did, I think, earlier mention something about a CNBC and I do have a quote here. And essentially, this is from an article from, I think, mid-2019 from CNBC. And it's, it's, and I quote... Bitcoin is making its case as an uncorrelated safe haven asset while mainstream markets tumble. Uh, end quote. That is kind of one of, arguably, one of the dumbest phrases I've ever heard, but there doesn't seem to be much lack of that on the internet, much less kind of, you know, CNBC. But really, the bottom line is that. You want a safe haven asset, a hedge, you know, especially when you're talking about a hedge, to have a correlation. Because then you can adjust your portfolio, allocating money to a safe haven asset and making, again, a calculated hedge. That's really what it comes down to. You know, for example, with gold, sorry. You can assume that it will become more valuable with greater political uncertainty, sustain low interests, high inflation. Um, But with Bitcoin, there is really no use of looking at monetary and fiscal policy right now because there is no clear link perhaps yet you know gold for example again i'm going to keep referring back to it uh it has a two and a half thousand year history as a store of value but uh, i mean with bitcoin I guess we'll have to see how it rolls out. But but that's it. I think that's kind of my piece on Bitcoin. As for now, j- just a lot of questions really around the system and the way it can be used or it shouldn't be used or it, it makes say- sense in theory or it doesn't make sense in theory. But anyways, uh, now I'm going to move on to the second story, and that is the UK selling negative yield bonds for the first time. And I want to look at, you know, what kind of distortionary effects might this have on other areas of the capital markets, you know, stocks, equ- uh, equities. Uh, whatever, just in general. Also, I was wondering okay, so what kind of distortionary effects might this have? But is it actually a product of some upstream distortionary effects? Like, you know, for example, uh, QE, uh, the Bank of England is purchasing a lot of bonds. It's cut rates to, you know, I mean, right now they're even talking about the potential for negative interest rates. So you kind of get the idea where they are and where they might be headed specifically. But it's all about the expectations, right? <clears throat> Anyways. In a historic moment, uh, you know, investors are now paying Boris to look after their money. And just as a point, the U.S. Tre- the U.K. Treasury have sold uh, th- th- they sold one billion pounds worth of one month bills in 2016 at a negative rate or a negative yield, sorry. But here we're talking about actually what just happened now was just on the four billion pounds of three year bonds at a uh, sold at a uh, negative zero point zero zero three percent yield. So essentially, this means that, I mean, this is literally the case. Investors will get back less in three years' time than what they put in today, right? So the way that the bond sale works is that the Treasury kind of um, goes out and, you know, they have an auction. They say, okay, we want to sell bonds dating to, in this case, 2023. So these are three-year gilts at... um, you know and how much are you willing to pay essentially they they might stay at a coupon in which case this was i think 0.75% and so then institutional investors or whoever um depending on the kind of system that we're in but in the UK it really was just uh, inst- institutional investors bidding or whoever's got access really in in this i think in Italy with the most recent bond sale uh a- anyone could have with ease you know i could have grabbed my grandmother's savings called up the bank and within 5 minutes Uh, bought a certain amount of bonds you know now whether you want to do that with italian bonds that's up to you but different countries are going to have different levels of easiness in regards to this but anyways back to the bond sale so the uk treasury goes to an auction they say i want to sell this amount of bonds uh, for this uh coupon rate and for this kind of maturity how much are you guys willing to pay right so and then people bid and within this kind of uh, negative yield auction, the average bid was one hundred and two pounds point three eight eight on the one hundred right that that 's kind of how it sold and if held to mature if if held to maturity it 's going to give you a yield of negative zero point zero three percent zero point zero zero three percent sorry but the keyword is if it 's held to maturity. So when I did speak about the distortionary effects, um, it probably won't be. I mean, it's hard to decide, but really there's a lot of security in that the Bank of England is supposedly also, there's been talks of stepping up its bond purchases. So whatever you buy it for, whatever's going to happen with the bond market um, ideally, I mean, for the investors, is going to keep on rallying. But essentially, you've got the security that the Bank of England is just going to buy it off of you. So, you know, are you going to be stuck with it for the next three years, yielding, you know, negative percents? Probably not. <clears throat> but really, you know, you're seeing a lot of that happening. But um, I guess some of the other questions I want to pose is that, you know, potentially, is this an alternative to holding cash, right? This is very similar to cash. I mean, especially with <clears throat> UK's inflation falling down to, I think it was 0.8% annualized in April or year on year in April. Just now, so you know, if you do get to an area wherein you have deflation in the UK, then actually the real yield uh, on your investment might be positive, right? Because each unit pound is going to be worth more in the future than it is today. So, even though you're gaining back minus or uh, you know, less 0.003 percent less, that might go a longer way if there is deflation. This is something that people might be expecting. And uh, again, kind of going back to the alternative of holding cash. You know, holding cash costs are something to be considered because, listen, if a bank says, I'm going to charge you 5% uh, interest rates, what I'm going to do personally with my, let's say, £1,000 in my bank account, I'm just going to hold it in cash. I mean, I'm going to take it out, I'm going to put it under my bed, uh, under my mattress, and I'm just going to hold onto it. There's no real cost for me. I'm going to, you know, earn a 0% rate but that's going to be better than negative 5% rate but when you're looking at institutional investors who don't have a thousand pounds in the bank they have millions they do have millions I mean you know with with the bond purchase here this is four billion pounds what are the storing costs for that amount of money right so investors may be actually willing to store money in uh, bonds at a very very tiny negative rate because that is still better than the kind of storage costs of that money they might have had elsewhere, wherever that might be in whatever system, right? So this is kind of why some of these yields or rates, you know, they may sometimes go negative. But when you're looking at the kind of downstream effects and distortionary effects, uh, you're looking at not just institutional investors, but as, as, a, as a whole, uh, you have a much less attractive potentially for some uh, kind of investment opportunity. An asset which yields negative, uh, a negative return, is actually very unattractive for some. You know, especially for pen- uh, pension schemes, uh, pe- uh, sorry, not pension schemes, but pension funds. People or companies, firms which take on assets and then obviously pay out pensions month after month, year year after year if those kind of asset historically they held bonds because bonds would yield you know 1 2, 3% in annual coupon rates uh, the price would do whatever but now with very minimal coupon rates pension uh, pension funds essentially are in a very problematically increasingly problematic illiquid position because even though their asset their balance sheets are expanding right the assets the bonds that they hold are worth a lot more their their cash flow position might be worse, right? Because even though, essentially, with bonds, the way that they work is that when the price increase of the bond, the yield falls, right? So you're going to get a much juicier balance sheet or assets, uh, or both really, paying you lower yields. But the yield as a pension fund is really what you care about. You being able to meet your cash um, commitments really month on month, year on year, and that is the liabilities which you're meant to be paying to your pensioners. That's problematic. Another distortionary effect is that this is redistributing cash from lenders to borrowers. You know, if Boris is going to pay you negative for uh, borrowing from you, then he's going to, like I said, give you back less um, than you gave him. So essentially, that's, again, redistributing cash from those who have it to those who don't and need it. Um, As a perspective from monetary policy, like I did mention, there was some uh, talk of negative rates. But that is, at this moment, it's exclusive to the UK government. You know, the official interest rates are not negative, but the yields, as as for this kind of bond sale, they are negative, right? So, essentially, even though the Bank of England has denied uh negative rates for now we'll, we never know what's going to change you know you have you still have covid brexit you to have a lot of problems and the uk government has got an incredible problem when it comes to debt and their kind of fiscal commitments right now in the fact that they're supporting i don't know the percentage of the workers but the uk does have a scheme wherein it pays the workers wages to the company uh oh sorry it pays the workers wages for the company uh as long as they just keep them on their payroll so you know, that's an incredibly big cash commitment, which doesn't have an easy political way out. I mean, you can't just—I mean, you can't. You can obviously cut out these wages essentially, uh, like in a in a click of the finger or whatever the phrase is. But <clears throat> but sorry, it's 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 a very kind of they're essentially in between a rock and a hard place. They're going to keep racking on more debt, or they're going to make you know a huge voter base. Uh, very angry, because I think I read the statistic somewhere, and this was on the comment on an article, so I don't know how credible this is, but they're supporting about a third of the workforce. That's a lot of voters, that's a lot of votes, right, but essentially, uh, like I said, from the the monetary policy, you're looking at negative interest rates, which are exclusive to the UK government, but you are not going to be paid for taking out a loan, personally, right, you as a guy, as a consumer, as just the everyday Joe. So, um, that's a shame, I guess, but you know, in in respect to future negative interest rates, uh, we don't know, we don't know, because the Bank of England governor has said that again, they're not going to currently do that. But at the same time, I think a week before, um, a week before the Bank of England did commit to becoming entering the primary market for the uh, U- UK bonds, and that is directly purchasing bonds from the UK government. A week before that, they said that they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't commit in, I think it was called um, monetary financing, Um, direct monetary finance, and that is specifically you going out as the Bank of England, the central bank, going out and purchasing these bonds directly from the auctions, which the Treasury sells them. right? So um, can you trust the the Bank of England governor? Can you trust the guy? I don't know. Uh, But at the same time, it just depends on how how things roll out. So it's not like uh, his word last week or 2 weeks ago or a month is going to hold much value in a in another month's time because the situation is so volatile we don't know what's happening we're in the dark and so they might adjust accordingly anyways that's that for this section thirdly i want to quickly talk about the universities and how they're essentially moving their education services online and again sh- should they actually charge lower fees because let's say <clears throat> the idea here is that the quality of education in the future Uh, when it is online, you know, during the next academic year, this might not actually reflect the quality of its previous years, you know, you can argue the case that face-to-face education cannot be replaced, cannot be, cannot have an alternative which is going to be as good as or better than itself, right, so I know that in the UK, Cambridge has said that um, it's going to be providing its educational services online i think manchester university of manchester is following suit to a certain extent not that everything is going to be online but again there is a kind of hybrid component but at the same time you know with different universities you've got the kind of prestige that comes with so cambridge you know you've got the name and so that is essentially a premium that they might have on fees but anyways when we kind of look at the cost side of this we know that the kind of module cost of oh, in general the cost of operations given ai given a software can actually be uh, lower you know the, the expansion of business on the you know on online essentially might be lower essentially ai and software allow people to scale indefinitely i mean one business professor right now could lecture the entire country now i'm not saying that he's going to mark everyone's coursework or whatever but the idea is that One business lecturer can provide lectures which millions of people can view, hundreds of thousands, whatever the number, you know, from one to a million. It doesn't matter. As long as you can get on the internet and watch a lecture, one business professor can lecture the entire country, right? So this is kind of the case for returning students. You know, am I going to get, like myself, for example, am I going to get the same kind of quality of education that I might have gotten if I was in a face-to-face situation, in the case of online services in terms of education, right zoom calls classes uh, recordings blah 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 um, that that's kind of the question I will pose right now and it's going to be interesting to see how different universities kind of adapt to this because Cambridge did their decision was in some people's perspective a bit out of the blue and unexpected, so we'll see how other universities kind of uh, reply because i know that a lot of students are obviously going to be vouching for fees to be lower because why would they otherwise but if we look at for example new joiners you know people who just applied or have just been getting offers to university or um well maybe not just yet but essentially you know what what is going to happen for the next year's first year students right well i've got this bloomberg article from i think last week i think it was the um Yeah, it was a business week, and I'm just going to quote here. Where is it? Right. Students taking gap years tend to be more affluent, better able to afford a $75,000 a year private college and the expense of taking an extended break before enrolling. But if too many of them put off their studies, it could smash the economic model underpinning the American $600 billion plus uh, six hundred u s dollar billion plus higher education system, private colleges rely on tuition and fees for thirty percent of their revenue for decades. Schools have billed higher prices to affluent families while charging less or nothing to or nothing at all sorry to high achieving students of modest means on average, for every one dollar that a private college charges, almost fifty cents go for financial aid, according to the National Association of college and university business officers uh, officers. So essentially, the problem here is that even though, obviously, the universities might not be insolvent, there might be a liquidity problem because the correlation, at least in the US in this case, is that more affluent students do take on... um, They might actually defer their entry to university because they want to get the full university experience, Uh, whatever it is, you know, they're scared of corona, whatever the problem might be. But actually, those students who are less affluent and those who are more likely to get financial aid, aka those who don't pay into the college as much as they take out in monetary terms just in the moment, in, you know, the time period now, uh, they might be the ones actually, you know, not deferring, going into university. So what that might happen in the US universities is that they're getting fewer fees in, but they might actually have the same amount of financial aid to pay out the kind of, again, cash commitments and the liquidity problems that arise from this. So... When it comes to fees, universities are definitely going to meander their ways to essentially to cut costs, but not cost, uh, cut fees, sorry, and have minimal, minimal, minimal effects on that side of the cash flow. And so even now, you know, you're looking at students not being on campus accommodation, accommodation Sorry, in the UK I'm beginning to stumble. Let me repeat. In the case of, of how we see things happening now in the UK, for example. Students, if online, educa- online educational services are provided, sorry, students are not going to be on campus. They're, they might not be paying for student accommodation. They might not be spending on campus, uh, etc. So what are students going to do? You know, like, um, or essentially what are the universities going to do? How are they going to earn their money? And are they going to be able to cut tuition fees to kind of accommodate for that? But then you know, in in protest to that, a student is just going to protest. I mean, who, who's going to care? A student's opinion is to either take on tuition fees as given or drop out, right? This kind of opera, operation is a bit more inelastic. I know that in the UK, students do have some power and some say, and they can protest and they can sign petitions. But I think in, in the end, it's essentially the university's kind of problem to solve an issue and judgment at the end of the day as to whether or not they're going to cut fees and you know give whatever reason they're going to be giving but i know the case with, with, with this is that universities are going to be reacting to one another and like i said cambridge can do whatever they want because they're cambridge oxford can do whatever they want because Oxford. but different universities might have to follow suit so as to not um damage their brand and have any problematic situations with the students, right? Because this isn't; pe- these aren't people who are just going to accept uh, your, let's say, decisions blindly if they're not happy, right? Students, we're very entitled. We like having things our own way. In fact, everyone does, right? Universities want high tuition fees. We want low tuition fees. And so where are we going to meet in the future? I don't know. But currently, universities have a lot of ca- cash commitments, um, potentially problematic relations with students if educational services are provided and they don't match the quality of face-to-face kind of services but we'll see how that's going to get solved if at all in the future but anyways for now this was the one of the kind of episodes of Investing Intellections I'm really stumbling here but essentially I'm restarting this kind of program the podcast with a different take on things or a different approach so I'm glad you enjoyed if you'd like you can check out my blog on investingintellect.com where I do more of these conversations deeper analysis and it's a bit more formal so anyways I hope you have a good day good week and uh, goodbye